Good morning. Glad you guys are with us today. Happy Labor Day. Dad gum, nobody wants to sit in the front row today, huh? All right. No, I'm good, I think. So, uh, happy Labor Day weekend. You guys excited? Geared up? Nobody should be laboring at all tomorrow. It's supposed to be hot. Find a pool, somebody. I'm inviting myself. I know some of y'all got pools. I'm inviting myself over. Just be ready. I'm coming. Uh, we're about to kick off a brand new series today, so I'm so glad you chose to be with us on this Labor Day weekend. I know you could have chosen a lot of other things, but I'm super excited about this series. I know I say that about every single series, but legitimately, I'm really excited about this one. I'm so excited as I was preparing this, it kind of got all up in my soul, and, and I decided to start a week early. I was actually scheduled to be off today. I said, it can't happen. I'm, I'm just telling you, we're, we're just doing this series, Flossom, how an awesome God uses flawed people, which let me tell you, first and foremost, I am one of those, okay? My wife's finally in service today. Just ask her, okay? I, I got plenty of flaws and, and I'm just excited to, to look at some other people's lives and show you how God can move and stir in your spirit. And, and I'm excited about this for a couple reasons. We're going to actually get to, and I think it's going to be a really encouraging series because we're going to get to see some big chunks of the Bible. I mean, if you all know more Bible is always better than less Bible, but we're also going to be exploring some people's lives, some flawed people who God made awesome and their lives are going to make your lives look like heaven on earth. Like you think you got stuff. You think your life is all jacked up. You think you got issues. You're going to walk out of church these next four weeks going, man, my life's not so bad after all. Like these, these people are really messed up and they're even in the Bible, like, like pioneers of the faith in the Bible. So I'll show you exactly where I got this idea for the series. It's Hebrews chapter 12. I didn't put it in your notes, uh, but you can take a look at it here on screen. It says, therefore, now, pause, because any time you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what's it there for? Okay, anyway, never mind. But it's therefore the fact that there's Hebrews chapter 11. So in, in the initial writing of your Bible, I don't know if you know this, but there were not chapters and verses. It was just all uh, strung together. And, and the reason there's a therefore there is because what it says in the paragraph before, and in that portion of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, theologians kind of call this the, the hall of fame of faith, because over and over it lists these great patriarchs within Christianity that says, by faith they did such and such, and by faith they conquered kingdoms, by faith they enforced justice is by faith they follow God. And then it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, since there are these pioneers of the faith, people like Abraham and Moses and David, since they're watching us, we've got to seriously consider how they did life so that we know how to do life and consider what they did so we can win like they won. Maybe more importantly, we've got to see what they shouldn't have done so that we also too can lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. Say it this way, sometimes we don't need to know exactly what to do. We just need to know what not to do. So this morning, in case you haven't figured it out, I want to talk to you, you know, by the 10-foot statue of Goliath back there. I want to talk to you about David. Now, typically when people hear about David, they think about Goliath. 
or the other person, Bathsheba. That's one of those two things. Uh, it's either the man or the woman when you hear David, Goliath, or Bathsheba. I don't want to talk about either one of them really at all today. We'll mention Goliath a little bit in passing, but, but David's story is much more than those two incidents. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. We're going to look at the flawed character of David. You're going to want to open up towards the front of your Bible, a place called 1 Samuel. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. There's going to be a table of contents there that will have a page number for you. If you flat out don't own a Bible, we've got a whole case of them in the back, some black ones. Grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. But you want 1 Samuel chapter 16. While you're getting there, let me kind of catch you up on what's happened up until this point. We're in 1000 BC, so roughly 3000 years from today. Let that sink in a little bit. I mean, this country's not even 300 years old, but we're 3000 years in the past. We're almost 300 years since Charlton Heston rescued the Jews from Egypt. Okay? Little joke for you. Don't. That's oh for two. Okay. Uh, you seen the movie, right? Ten Commandment. Okay. Never mind. But Moses rescues Egypt. Moses' successor Joshua led this few million people into the land that God had promised them. But since he died, they're struggling with leadership. They've appointed these judges, but the judges don't always do a good job or do what's right. We're going to read about one of those guys next week in Samson. Uh, but because of that. Here's what Scripture describes within this community of Israel. This is how the people are living. This is Judges 21-25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It probably goes without saying that what's right in their own eyes was not always what was right in God's eyes, yet God tried to help them. He appoints some prophets who would speak to the people. Uh, he, God would speak to the prophets and the prophets would relay the message to the people. But the people rarely listened because like us, they knew how to run their life better than God. Now, nobody would actually say that, but you don't have to because I know that you've made decisions because I've made decisions that we know were wrong, yet we made them anyway. So how do the Israelites uh, the Israelites were doing this, the exact same thing that many of us do today. So God appoints a man named Samuel to judge and prophesy to the people of Israel. He was faithful. The people prospered. They were safe. It was a good time. But Samuel got old. Watch this. First Samuel 8.1. When Samuel became old, right there, he made his sons judges over Israel, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old. It's not all they said to him. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel doesn't like that. Not the fact that they called him old, but the fact that they wanted a king. So he tries to warn them about all the dangers of a king. Like, you're going to have to pay a king taxes. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your crops. He's going he's to conscript your sons into to being soldiers. Who knows what will happen to your daughters? But they don't care. They say, no, we want a king. Everybody else has got a king. Give us a king. And in a move fitting of most Americans today, they choose a king solely based on looks. They find the tallest guy they can find, the most handsome man around, a guy named Saul. They say, this needs to be our king. He's beautiful. 
He's tan. He's got a six-pack. Let's, let's make him a king. These are all great leadership attributes. Not so much. So when your leadership qualifications are, I look good. That's it. Typically things are going to get a little Western on you, and they did. Saul was not a good king. He was insecure. He was ill-tempered. His haughtiness caused him to disobey God, which, which caused this prophet Samuel to inform him that your kingdom is now going to get taken away from you and given to your neighbor. The kingdom of Israel is no longer yours, Saul. You cannot lead the people of God if you yourself are not following God. And so that's where we're at in 1 Samuel 16. A disobedient people, a disobedient king ruling the nation of Israel. So here we go. 1 Samuel 16. Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem to look for a king. Which is funny because years later we're going to see a king born in Bethlehem. But anyway, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, clean yourselves up in other words, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do, that sentence. How's your heart this morning? It's what God is looking on in your life. Verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Samuel said, Nope. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, negative. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, this ain't any of them. None of these are the king. It's kind of funny because in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completion. It's a complete no for these dudes, in other words. I thought that was funny. Okay, man, I'm terrible today. All right, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Jesse said, all the sons I'm proud of. See, many scholars agree that David was an illegitimate son. That Jesse was not proud of him. That in Psalm 51, David writes, in iniquity I was brought forth. In sin my mother conceived me. It would explain why when the prophet showed up to the house, David was not invited in with the rest of his brothers because his mom was not the same mom. He was not a true son of Jesse. So Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's watching the sheep. In other words, you're not going to want him. He's just a shepherd. It's important for you to realize where shepherds ranked on the socioeconomic chain. They were the lowest of the low. Nobody liked the shepherds. They could not even testify in court because nobody believed their words could be trusted. Who knew what they were doing out there in the field with the sheep? It was common knowledge, in fact, that if you saw a shepherd in a pit, you were not obligated to help him out. Just let him stay there, starve to death, and die. They were dirty, stinky, poor human beings. 
Which is also why it's so scandalous that when Jesus is born in Bethlehem a thousand years later, that God shows up. Who first? To the shepherds. It's unbelievable. Nonetheless, Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we're not going to sit down until he comes in here. I once heard a pastor say that there are things waiting for you to show up. Nothing's moving until the one God chose to be in that position gets there. You are an entire, the key to an entire system being fulfilled. Like God has anointed you for something, for such a time as this. Now that's not the primary meaning of the verse, but it's true. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. A plan that's going to bring you joy and fulfillment and peace and God glory. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now David was ruddy or he had good complexion. He was beautiful. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That's a big deal. You might underline that in your Bible as well, because that's the only time that you're going to see that in the Old Testament where you had a continuous anointing of the Holy Spirit on somebody. Oftentimes, as we can see next week with Samson, God's Spirit will rush on an individual, but it's intermittently. That's not so with David. The Holy Spirit was with him from that day forward. Just for the record, the same thing is true in your life when you trust Jesus as your Savior. His Holy Spirit will rush upon you and take up residence in your life and you will be made new and you will be led by God from that day forward. But, guess what David does next? He's anointed king in front of his family. In front of his family, the Spirit of the living God has taken up residence in his life. And David, King David, he goes back and starts watching the sheep. Sheep that weren't even his. I guess now they kind of sort of were because he's king. But uh, what's the lesson here? The lesson is there's a process. Even when the Spirit of God falls on you, your character has to match your calling. Your character has to match your calling. You might draw that down if you're taking notes. Because David was round about 15. He was not ready to be king. God needed to do some maturing work within him. You know how long that took? Another 15 years. For 15 years, every step that David took was as a king. But he wasn't the king until 15 years later. I don't know what the parallel is in your life, but I know God has to prepare you before He will release you. Some of you think you're ready for that job or that relationship or that responsibility, and the fact is you might be someday. But God's timing is always perfect. If He hasn't put you in that position yet, something's not right. The good news is we've already established that nothing's going to move until you get there. And God is always about not letting you miss out on something for your good and His glory. Now, the next chapter is uh, in Samuel is where David meets Goliath. We've probably heard some version of the story. The champion warrior of the Philistine, Goliath, calls out the men of Israel for 40 days, every morning and every night. He says, somebody come and fight me. 
logic would suggest that when a giant comes out, you send in your tallest guy, right? I mean, as a basketball coach, that's what we always did when they had the, you, you bring out the seven footer, like we send in our tallest guy to guard him. He's like 6'3 at the time, but you know, it doesn't matter. You just, you do what you got to do. Well, the same thing is true in battle. You got to send in your tallest guy. Well, who was the tallest guy? Saul, yeah, and he was nowhere to be found. King Saul, stereotypical power hungry coward. But David ain't scared. He says, how dare this fool insult the army of the living God? See, when the Holy Spirit rushes on you, you get a little bit more bold because you know what God can do. And, and David says, I'm going to handle this. So I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. This dude ain't any different from that. And you know what happens. God helps David slay the giant Goliath. Israelite army chases after the Philistine, kills a number of their soldiers. But I want to show you something specific within that story that was like a real big light bulb for me that uh, went off. First Samuel seventeen forty says, Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Now, What's interesting about this is, is that word stone, that David chose five stones. And God's providence, in the same time I'm preparing this message in my own personal reading Bible plan that I read through, uh, God has me in Isaiah t- chapter 28, where I read in verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Now, as I was reading, I was thinking, man, this word stone just jumped out at me. There's five stones with with David, and then I'm reading here in Isaiah all these stones, and so I don't know how your mind works, but I needed to know, is this the same word? And so I I looked it up, and in fact, we know uh, that the word stone in this scripture is the same word that uh, Isaiah uses for stone, and we also know from the rest of scripture that this tested stone, this cornerstone is referring to Jesus. So follow me on this. The number five in Old Testament theology is the number of grace. So how does an awesome God use flawed people only through the grace of stones, only through the grace of Jesus? The cornerstone. Write it down this way. Lesson number two, God's grace has to be in place. God's grace has to be in place. In the same way David loaded up his pouch with the grace of Jesus so too do you need to load up your life with the grace of Jesus. You're never going to be able to fill your potential without the grace of God working feverishly in your life. If you're flawed like me, God still wants to use you for something awesome, but your character has to match your calling and you have to be made new through the grace of Jesus. And the Bible says, That you simply have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That He is who He said He was, which is God. And that He did what He said He would do, which is raise from the dead and thereby conquer both sin and death. When that truth captivates your life, I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter how flawed you are. doesn't matter what you've done. God's got something for you. Come on, somebody. It's greatest news in the history of the world. But back to David. He has slain this giant Goliath. He's chopped off his head. People are singing songs about him. 
They say Saul has killed his thousand. David his tens of thousands. Everybody loves him except the king. Saul can't stand him. In the end, he tries to kill him repeatedly. The problem is, aside from the fact that that the Holy Spirit has flooded David's life, he's also become friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. He's also gone on to marry Saul's daughter. And so they can both see the lunacy within their dad, king. And so they help David out. One night it all comes to a head. Everybody's sitting around the supper table. Everybody but David, who he should have been there as the son-in-law, but Jonathan had warned him, told him not to come. Saul was going to kill him. So check this out, 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Like, dang, I hope she wasn't at the table, right? I mean, she was invited to supper too. That's jacked up. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman who's sitting right there. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, I want my kingdom to live on through you boy and that can't happen with david in the picture very typical king move now at this point david does what you and i would do when somebody wants us dead he panics he runs away you can see it in first samuel 21 then david came to nob to ahimelech the priest and ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? See, that's very odd for the son-in-law of the king. It's very odd for the man who is the commander of the king's bodyguard. David is in charge of a thousand men. He would, he would never travel with less than that. He, there should be somebody else with him. This is confusing to the priest. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with I have charged you. I have made an appointment to meet these young guys at such and such a place. So David lies and not even a good lie, but it's no different from us. We're afraid of the consequences of our decisions. So we lie. Y'all got kids? Man, those guys lie, right? Y'all got chocolate? Yeah, it's like, I caught my son the other day. Who ate the chocolate? Wasn't me? Man, there's bro- the chocolate on your face, son. Don't know how it got there. Like, I have you on camera eating the chocolate. Somebody photoshopped me in. You know what I mean? Like, like the- and we didn't have to teach him any of that. You didn't have to teach him to lie. They just lie. That's what... It's our human nature. So David does the same thing. David lies. He continues. Now then, what do you have on hand to eat? I'm hungry. I need five loaves of bread or whatever's here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's the holy bread. Priests would often bake bread and sacrifice it to the Lord on the altar. More times than not, God would not show up to eat the bread, so they would eat the bread. The priests that were on uh, duty and consecrated, they could eat that bread, but David should not eat the bread. But he takes it anyway. In verse 8, then David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Again, he lies. 
The priest says, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, is here. So David takes that sword. And get this, David, in his wisdom, decides to go to Gath. Well, who was from Gath? Anybody know their Bible? Goliath, yeah, the Philistines. So David decides to go to the town that Goliath is from, carrying Goliath's sword. Well, long story short, he gets there, he realizes that's kind of a dumb idea. All these guys don't trust me. They're likely going to kill me, so he pretends to be in stain. Starts drooling all over himself, starts scratching on the floor. The Philistine king says, I've got enough fools in this kingdom. I don't need another one. Get him out of here. It's a true story. Check it out in your Bible. But that's kind of the picture in our lives, is it not? It's when we need God the most that we are the least apt to lean in His direction. We are tempted to run away, do things that don't work, that have never worked, but we try it anyway, only to find ourselves regretting the decision. I know at least in my own life, when I take things into my own hands, it usually feels good, but rarely turns out good. Did not turn out good for David either. See, there was another person at the temple the night David showed up and took the sword and took the bread. It was a guy named Doag. Doag decides that he's going to tattle on David. He goes to Saul knowing that Saul wants David dead. He says, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Keep in mind, David was lying to Ahimelech. Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? King's son-in-law, captain of the bodyguard, highly respected. Was that the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Himelech's clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. Saul doesn't buy it, so he tells his guards to kill the priest and the men that he brought with him. They're like, we ain't killing priests, bro. So Doeg says, I'll do it. And he does. Kills all of them. Verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech named Abiathar escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to him that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. What is the lesson to be learned here? You can jot it down like this. I can't control my outcome, but I can control my obedience. Can't control the outcomes, but I can control the obedience. D- David knew what he was doing was wrong. And he knew that there were consequences. He just admitted it here. I'm responsible. I knew this was going to happen. Now, here's what I know about your life your sin never affects just you, it always affects the people around you. And I can tell you who it affects the most the people you care about the most. That's who your sin is going to affect. The problem here is we rarely recognize it in the moment. 
Have you ever thought about that? We always see the danger in everybody else's life, but we can never put our finger on it in our own. See, the moment that David saw the sword of Goliath, he should have remembered what God had done. He should have remembered how he was anointed king. And God would not let him die without sitting on the throne because, listen to me, God always keeps his promises. But it's hard to see God and trust God in those moments. It's easy to trust him when we have nothing to trust him with nothing to trust Him for. But when God starts asking for things like our family and our children and our jobs and our finances, and to trust Him with those things, well, then all of a sudden it becomes real. And God wants a little bit more from your life than you just showing up to church on Sunday. Like He wants the whole thing. And that becomes difficult. So let me just remind you all of something. A thousand years after this moment... David's most famous descendant is going to be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus, his most famous descendant, shortly before he leaves this planet, he says to his disciples and to us that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And just like David, the moment he saw the sword of Goliath, he should have snapped back into faith and being led by the Spirit. Maybe this morning God brought you here to remind you that He's in control. He knows what's going on. He knows what you're facing. But maybe He's asking you to trust Him. Hasn't He always seen you through before? The answer is absolutely, because you're here this morning. God's always seen you through. So maybe as we close... I'll just say that He didn't answer your prayer like you thought He would. But that doesn't mean that He wasn't working within the situation. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So just take a second to imagine what your life would look like if your character matched your calling. We call that integrity. Like if everything that you did lined up with how you actually spoke and believed? And, and what if God's grace was in its place and you were consistently obedient? And you just trusted God for the outcome. You were just doing by faith what He's asked you to do. Imagine what your life could look like if that was your story. Imagine how different your home could look. Imagine how different your job could look. Imagine how different your school experience could be when you're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead your life. I would contend that you will find yourself a flawed person, but being used by an awesome God for something even greater than you could possibly imagine, as Ephesians tells us. I pray that that can be your story moving forward today. The good news about all of those things is you can start that today. You can start making decisions to have integrity and your character can match your calling. You can make the decision right now to follow Jesus and His grace can be in its place. And then you can trust God with the outcome of your life. And you can just be obedient to all the things that He's called you to do. And it requires just some small decisions on your part daily. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I know that you can start today. So let's close in prayer and pray towards that end. God, we love you. 
We thank you for the opportunity to even come and gather into this place. Thank you for the freedom that we have in this country. Thank you for the men and women who help serve to provide us with that freedom. God, I'm just praying right now that your Holy Spirit floods the lives of everybody sitting in this room just like it did for David. That they would be drawn to you. That they'd be willing to take responsibility for their actions as David was. And confess with their mouth, believe in their heart that you are Lord. That your grace can be in its place. Trust you as the cornerstone of their life. If that's you this morning, you want to trust in Jesus for the very first time. I just invite you to to do what the Bible said and confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. I'll lead you in a prayer, not because there's magic in the prayer, but because I want to give you a chance to do that before you leave today. Just say, God, I believe in your son Jesus that he died for me. I have sin and I'm sorry. Help me to follow you. Thank you for saving me. God, I thank you for restoring that life back to you. I thank you for all the lives represented here this morning. I just ask you to move in a powerful way. Show them where they're falling short within their character and their calling. Show them where they need to be more obedient and trust you for the outcome. God, I'm praying for blessings over each person here today that you would line them up with their purpose as you did with David. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.